Well, I don't know if you um, noticed on the way in, when you grab a bulletin, there's a little flyer in there that we call our prayer bulletin, and we really hope that you will take that home and that you'll be taking advantage of the opportunity to pray for your brothers and sisters, for your neighbors here at First Family Church. Uh, we also have a, a prayer chain that you can be involved with if you want to give your uh, email address to our secretary. She can put you on an alert system in case there are urgent needs that we need prayed for, and we don't want to wait till Sunday to put those in the bulletin. Uh, it is important for us to be praying for one another. And if you uh, often do pray over that prayer sheet, then uh, the story I'm about to share with you is probably not new to you. You're probably familiar with it. You may even have been praying about this situation in uh, the lives of two of our families here. Uh, the Prezes and the Galvises uh, have a lot of family in El Salvador. And El Salvador is a, a beautiful place, but it is not a perfect place. And unfortunately, uh, the government of El Salvador is struggling with some, some corruption right now. Uh, they have a loved one. His name is Jorge. Uh, Teresa and Antonieta have a sister named Lupita. Lupita is married to Jorge. Jorge worked in the financial uh, department of the government of El Salvador underneath one of the former uh, president's administrations. And because of the political tension in El Salvador, the new political party that was recently elected into office has put in a tremendous amount of effort taking the people who worked under the old administration and accusing them of terrible crimes. And so for the last three and a half years, Jorge, though he is a man of integrity, a man of humility, a man who drives, I think it's a mid-90s Toyota Camry, he has very little in the way of uh, earthly possessions. He lives in a house that was deeded to him by family members, yet he's been accused of stealing uh, millions of dollars from the El Salvadorian government. And he's been stuck in this jail cell for three and a half years, They've rendered a verdict and still have not let him go. He served what they said he was supposed to owe. Um, and recently we got word that perhaps there was a change and that we're going to change his sentence and he was finally going to be able to be sent home. And so we began to get our hopes up and we began to pray prayers of thanksgiving that all these prayers that we had prayed for so long were finally being answered only to find out that that was a rumor and that uh, there is no end in sight for this poor man who just wants to be with his family. We live in a world, sadly, I pray that you'll pray for the, the Perez family and the Galvis family as they lift up these family members who are really struggling. There are other family affected by this there in El Salvador. There are many, many broken hearts, and we're praying that God would use the involvement of the Perez's and the Galvises to lead their family to Christ and to a greater strength in uh, faith. And, and in the meantime, it's hard. Living in a world where injustice abounds is not easy. And that is going to be the focus of uh, the passage of Scripture that we're going to preach through today in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, please open up to the Old Testament book of wisdom that we call Ecclesiastes. We've been going through this um, book verse by verse, week by week, and uh, the writer of this book, Solomon, the second or third king of Israel, has given us some tremendous insight, has asked some very, very difficult questions, not all of which are 100% resolved at this point in the book. Uh, this book is a journey. And so as we go through, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the main character who is Solomon himself, uh, will ask questions and then will work through those questions on his own in an attempt to find answers to those questions. And so this passage in Ecclesiastes 3 that we're going to study today can be broken down into four distinct parts. The preacher of Ecclesiastes has kindly given us these verbal prompts that will help us to see the progression of his thought through these seven verses. So you can see in your note sheet there, uh, that on verse 16, he says that I saw. He's indicating to us his observation. He looks around the world, 
He sees things happening. He takes that data in and it causes his mind to begin to think and reflect. And so in verse 17, we get the second movement, which is the preacher's first comment. He begins to comment on the things that he has observed with his eyes. He says, I said in my heart. So there's some self-reflection here. He's working through these questions. Then there's a second comment that begins in verse 18 and carries on through verse 21. This is a longer rumination on the things that he sees in life. This is his longest reflection. So we're going to spend a little bit more time on that this morning. And then finally, the last verse of the section we'll study today is verse 22, uh, which begins with the phrase, So I perceived. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes will then sum up what he has learned through this observation and recollection and reflection. So let's begin with Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Solomon writes, Moreover, I saw, there you see that, uh, that indicator that we're moving into a time of observation here. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The preacher's observation, even though there is a time and a season for everything under heaven, which we read just two weeks ago, uh, in the very beginning of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, we read that God is sovereign, that He has a plan, and that plan is being carried out in the world. Even though there's a time and a season for everything under heaven, things do not appear to be as fair in this world as they ought to be. The writer's tone has shifted back. He was just a few moments ago firmly resolute about the sovereignty of God. It's shifted back now into a thoughtful concern. He's, he's cautiously working through some ideas, some thoughts that might make him change his mind about what he said earlier. It goes without saying that a God of justice would place a high priority on making sure that corruption did not affect the world that he rules over, right? At least that would be what we would think, and yet we look throughout the world and we can observe, just as the preacher of Ecclesiastes did, that wrong things happen. Bad things happen to people that love the Lord. Good things happen to people who deserve judgment and condemnation. There is injustice all around us. But God does love justice. We see the evidence of this. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 19. <clears throat> give you a little background on that, that passage as we enter into the middle of a bigger story. The nation of Israel has experienced a few kings by this time. Remember, Israel was uh, at the beginning a united nation of 12 tribes, ruled first by Saul and then by David and then by Solomon, the son of David. But after Solomon passed away, his son who took the throne after him uh, was not as wise as he. And great division occurred in the nation of Israel such that ten of the tribes split off from the other two and you had the northern nation of Israel separate from the southern nation of Judah. And so for the next several generations, there were kings in the north and kings in the south. And those kings uh, did a, a wide range of, of jobs, some faithful, some very wicked, of ruling the nations that are called after the name of God. And so by the time we get to 2 Chronicles 19, there has been a very wicked king on the throne in the northern kingdom. His name was Ahab. If you want to learn more about him, read about Elijah the prophet. Ahab was married to a woman named Jezebel. Most of us know that she was a shady character, not one to be trusted. Ahab was not much better than she. But in the southern kingdom, the rule of the king in Judah was different. And so we read about that starting in 2 Chronicles 19, verses 4 through 7. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. 
And he went out again among the people, from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land and in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking of bribes. Isn't that a wonderful picture of a human leader taking seriously the responsibility and the authority that God has placed on his shoulders to be the king over the nation called after his name? Jehoshaphat was doing everything in his power to make sure that God's just qualities were reflected in the people that were called after his name. He took measures to bring about consistent justice administered by leaders that God had appointed by the Holy Spirit in accordance to the regulations and the laws, not that man had made up, but that God had given to man through the prophets and through the revelation that was delivered through Moses. Jehoshaphat knew that justice needed to be available, but not just to a few, to all people. And so he began to appoint judges in every major city. Every fortified city had a judge so that people, wherever they were at in the kingdom, could come and, and have their case heard. This justice was administered as more than just a practical way of keeping the peace. The king warned the judges that as representatives of the Lord, God was with them, and God would judge through them. They were performing the will of their creator by serving as judges in Israel. And so therefore, their ability to judge well and to secure proper justice for their people was hinging upon whether they feared the Lord or not. If they feared the Lord, they would do their job well. But if they neglected God, if they treated Him as a little thing in their lives, then they would not be good judges. So this is a great picture of, of faithful leadership, of somebody who cared about justice and took measures to try to make the land a place where justice would ring. Unfortunately, Jehoshaphat's example is a rare one indeed. It is an ideal that man so often fails to live up to. There were dozens of kings in Israel in the north and Judah in the south through all the generations, but every one of them, for every one of the good examples of a leader in Judah or in Israel, there were ten examples of men who strayed from God, led people into the worship of false gods, ignored the commandments of Scripture, and even twisted it to make people do what they wanted them to do. The world is teeming with apparent injustices. And we must take note here, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes observed in verse 16, that injustice is not just general. He's talking specifically here about the fact that many injustices come from the very place that you think justice should come from. We see evidence of the same thing in our own day and age right now and right here in America. Within churches, a church is called a sanctuary, a safe place. It should be a place where people can come and, and be honest and be open about who they are. It's a place where they should come for guidance, where they can be prayed for, where they can be loved. And sadly, we, we too often hear about men in leaderships at churches who use that position of influence and authority to take advantage of people. There are, there are so many cases of, of sexual misconduct within churches where justice should reign and yet injustice has infected the leadership. We see examples of this of, in the examples of racial partiality in law enforcement today. 
Now, this is not the case with all law enforcement, but there are too many stories of legitimate cases where people who, because of the color of their skin, were not given due process or treated violently or without, without care, without respect because of their ethnicity. We see this in the medical profession. People who have taken a Hippocratic oath to protect life in all of its forms and yet are willing to perform abortions to end the life of tiny children who have not even yet drawn a breath. The place where a, a child should feel safest in the, in the office of, a, of a, a, a medical professional finds themselves in, in the crosshairs. That's the kind of nation that we live in today. And so this stirs up the thinking man to ask tough questions. If God is sovereign, if God has control over all things, then how do we count for all the injustices in the world? Couldn't an all-powerful God who has a perfect plan put a stop to all this craziness? And not only could He, but wouldn't He? Shouldn't He do that if He is a good God? The presence of injustice in the world causes some to question the very sovereignty of the Creator. Some might think, well, maybe God allows injustice because he can't really make everyone do what he wants them to do. Maybe he's not as sovereign as we thought he was. Maybe he's incapable of enacting his perfect plan and that's why there's injustice in the world. Other people doubt the character of God. They say, well, maybe God is powerful, but maybe he's not as good as we thought he was. Maybe he doesn't really care all that much about us. And so if injustice happens to people like us who are just mortal, and he just overlooks it. It's not that big of a deal to him. And so they question the goodness of God. Still others look to a third solution to this problem. Perhaps God is able. Perhaps God is good and just. But there is some good and noble reason that we have yet to see or perhaps think of ourselves that might explain why injustice is allowed under the watchful and sovereign eye of a perfect God. That is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is going to suggest to us as we move through this process of thinking through the injustice in the world. Verse 16 describes what the preacher saw. It is an observation that causes him to think through this concept of God's perfect sovereignty. And in verse 17, we see the kinds of thoughts that this observation stirs up in Solomon's mind. I said in my heart, writes Solomon, that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. This is his first comment on the thoughts that went through his head in verse 16. The preacher said this in his heart, meaning that he ponders it deeply. He's meditating upon the answer. He doesn't just splurt out the first thing that comes into his head. He is doing his best to make sense of how injustice could possibly coexist in a world ruled by a perfect God. Considering the critical nature of this question, how important it is to understand the nature and character of our God, the preacher wastes no time reaffirming in verse 17 his confidence, not only in the Lord's ability to banish injustice, but also in his intention to do so. He doesn't subscribe to this idea that the messiness of the world should lead us to question God's power. He doesn't subscribe to this, this doubt that seeds itself in the hearts of of men that because there is injustice in the world, maybe God doesn't care. Rather, the persistent injustice we are witnessing only indicates that the season for perfect justice is not yet upon us. Notice what he says here in verse 17 very specifically. He says that God will judge. That doesn't mean that he's not judging now. 
but it means that there will be a day when perfect judgment is fulfilled by the hand of our God. The perfect justice that we long for is not perfectly realized yet, but it will be. All that is wrong will be made right by His mighty hand. Many people don't want to think about the role of God as judge. They like to think about God as a father. They like to think about God as a savior. But when they think about God as judge, that makes them a little bit uncomfortable. And yet this is essential to his character. In fact, love and judgment, contrary to popular belief in this world, are not enemies of one another. You can have both. In fact, there must be judgment and truth if real love is going to exist. Love is wanting what is best for someone else and being willing to apply yourself to help them to achieve it. In order to love someone, therefore, you must be able to see what is best for them. You must want something that is best for them. You've got to have discernment. You've got to be able to judge between what is good and what is evil. That is essential to love. And isn't that the very nature of, of wedding vows? When a man and a woman love each other so much that they want to come together in a covenant agreement and walk through life side by side for the rest of their days here on earth, they are making a judgment statement before many witnesses. Their vows are an expression of this. When somebody makes a wedding vow, they're saying, here is how I plan to love you for the rest of my life. I have determined that this is the right way to love and I'm promising to do it from this point forward. No one vows, I do solemnly swear to treat you however I feel like treating you on a given day, depending on the circumstances of the moment. Nobody vows that, right? Nobody vows that because that's not love. That's a lack of judgment. And that's a lack of commitment. That's not concern for somebody else's best. Man sure does love his freedom, though. He wants to be independent. And so seeing God as the judge of all things tends to make man and woman a little bit nervous. We want the freedom to live our lives how we want without judgment. We think it's loving to live and to let live and to be very tolerant of everybody else's life choices. But if all choices are equally valid and there's no difference between one and another, therefore no judgment is needed, then that means that we don't need to love anyone to, to what is best for them. We don't need to help them achieve what is best because they can just decide that whatever is best is whatever they have today. That kind of love would simply be getting out of other people's way so that they can live whatever life they want to live. That's not real love. That's not relationship. The eventual result of that kind of interaction isn't connectedness, it's isolation. When everyone creates their own truth, that leaves people with no meaningful common ground between them, or at least no common ground that they can hope to last. Love and judgment go hand in hand. And that is why, as God's people, we need to be committed to speaking the truth in love, as Ephesians 4 teaches us to do. Now, no one is more qualified to render judgment than a God who is not only all-knowing and omniscient, but is also the very essence of love. God has every right to judge, and we should be thankful that He's willing to do so. In fact, when we lament the injustice that exists in the world, when we turn on the news and we can't even watch the whole thing, we've got to turn it off because we're so frustrated at how much injustice has infected our world. What we're longing for is God as judge. We're longing for Him to come in and make right 
what we have made wrong. So we can't push away this aspect of God's character. He is a judge, but He is a loving judge. He is a good judge. There is no corruption found in Him. For God's own reasons, justice is not immediate, but it is eminent. His justice is not immediate, meaning that we don't see the full manifestation of His justice, but it is imminent. That word means that it will come to pass. It is guaranteed, friends. God keeps His promises, and He has promised that sin will not abound in the world forever. Both the wicked and the righteous will be subject to His rule. Notice this. Both the wicked and the righteous will be subject to His rule. When He speaks in verse 17, He doesn't just say that the wicked will be judged and condemned. He says that all men will come before Him in judgment. Which might remind us that of uh, Paul's uh, passage of Scripture in chapter 14 of Romans. Starting in verse 10, He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you... Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So this judgment seat is not just reserved for the unsaved. It is something that all of us will experience. Righteous living does not afford us an independence from God. Some people think that way. They think that as long as I keep the rules that God likes, then I'm independent to live however I want to live. If you don't break the law in this country, in the United States, if you're a good citizen and you don't break any of the laws, you don't upset the police, the government tends to leave you alone. That's kind of a best case scenario for an American citizen, to never have to interact with the police because you're not doing anything wrong, to not have the IRS knocking on your door because you're not breaking their laws, you're not taking their money from them. To live your life in such a way that you have freedom to just do what you want to do. That's kind of a best case scenario in America. But we cannot desire that kind of a relationship between ourselves and God. We cannot toe the moral line in hopes that God will simply leave us alone. That is not why Jesus bled and died for sinners like us. The atonement of Jesus Christ does more than just secure justice in a legal sense for us. It brings us into a radical intimacy with the judge of all things. There is a judge who knows the difference between right and wrong. And that judge will bring everything into judgment. He will judge sin perfectly. And that should be a problem for us, friends, because we all know that every human being who has drawn breath on this earth with the exception of one has been a sinner. And our sin is not just a social inconvenience. It is not just the worst case scenario for our interactions with one another. When we sin, we are breaking the commands of the one who gave us life. There's a serious consequence for that. When we offend the maker of heavens and earth, we become an enemy to him. We are now rebels against his kingdom. So if, if nothing is done, then, then we will be under that wrath of God. His judgment will fall to us and the sins that we have committed against him will be paid for, not just for a moment, but for eternity. Now, thankfully, this God of justice also has a, a heart of mercy and grace. And so he sent that one exception, human being, Jesus Christ, into this world. God who took on a human body and lived a life like you and I live, except for one thing, that he never sinned like you and I sinned. 
Jesus in all ways fulfilled the law of God. He kept them to a T. Not just refusing to sin in an active way, but also in every sense saying yes to God when God told him to love others and to serve others and, and, and to engage in graceful, faithful living. So Jesus fulfilled the law. And that God who, who loves us sent this Son, not just as an example to us, not just to show us how bad we are, but so that that perfect man, Jesus Christ, would be an atoning sacrifice. That He would go and suffer the fate that we had earned for ourselves, being punished as a criminal on the cross. Though He didn't deserve to die, Jesus took our sin on His shoulders. He suffered and bled for us. His life expired on that cross. And through death, He paid the full penalty that we owed to God. All who trust in the work that He did no longer carry the debt of sin for themselves. It has been paid in full by the gracious acts of Jesus Christ. And Jesus did that. Why? Not just to get you out of hell. Not just so that you can be free from suffering, but so that you can now be a part of the family of God. God wanted to reconcile you to Himself so that you don't just see this judge as a faraway yard duty that takes care of the rules and makes sure that the bad people are, are, are taken away. This is the God who loves you and draws you near and allows you to call Him by the name Father. That is why we are saved, friends. So God's plan might puzzle us because His judgments do not happen immediately. But Solomon encourages us to have faith that they will indeed come to pass when God sees fit. When the time is right, He will judge perfectly. Verses 18 through 22 present a second, more expanded comment that the preacher feels compelled to make considering the injustice that he has seen in the world. Starting in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beasts go down into the earth. And we're going to have to talk a little bit about the Hebrew constructs in this passage because there's some textual variances that help us to understand what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us here. Justice is not immediate because verse 18 makes it very clear that God has something to teach them. He is testing man. He is teaching them something about themselves and He is teaching them something about God. This delay in justice is not random. It is not neglectful. It creates a condition that is necessary for man to learn and to grow. Knowing that their default tendency matches the sinful compulsion of Adam, their ancestor. God has allowed these seemingly unjust conditions to persist in the world so that human beings would be without excuse, so that they would see the pure evidence that when they tried to detach themselves from God's sovereign rule, justice will inevitably be impossible for them. This test is there to help them to see something about themselves. That man is ultimately like animals. Now, that might be a weird thing for you to hear from a, a Bible-teaching pulpit, right? Because many of you have talked to your atheist friends, and they have said, you know, I'm, I'm a follower of science. I, I'm glad that religion works for you, but I'm, I'm a scientist, so I believe that we're all 
animals. We are the most advanced of the animals. You know, we, we are far more intelligent than the other animals, but we're basically the latest thing on the food chain. And as Christians, we, we, we bristle at that. that. That's not what the Bible teaches us. We go back to Genesis chapter 1 and we see something very important displayed there. We see that God made all things. He made every bird in the air, every beast in the field, every fish in the sea. And then once all those creatures had been made, He made human beings. And He made them distinctly different, did He not? He made them imago dei. That's Latin for in the image of God, He created man and woman. So any atheist who tries to tell me that we're just the most advanced of the animals will have to explain to me then why we are called the image of God by the God who has revealed truth to us. That, that fact that we are the image of God sets us apart from animals. So why does Ecclesiastes here say that we are just like the beasts? Let's look closely again at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves... Now that phrase, they themselves, is a really interesting phrase in the original language. We don't see it come across quite so clearly in the English. But this term is an, an emphatic. It means it's ultimately stressed in the original language. There are four separate terms in that original Hebrew that each point to man themselves. So a literal reading of the passage might some, sound something like that they may see that they are, they themselves, like beasts. The emphasis is put on they themselves so that they will see that He's talking about man isolated from God. Man apart from the image of God. Were it not for the gracious hand of God that makes us in His image, we would be nothing more than beasts of the field. But because we are made in the image of God, we're capable of something greater. God has greater intentions for us. But when we live as though the image of God is not a part of who we are, when we live in complete ignorance to the image of God, we tend to act like beasts do. We become ultimately pragmatic, which means that the ideals that God has set forth before us are no longer all that important. And what really matters to us is what accomplishes what we want today, right now. We're practical, like an animal is practical. I'm going to tell a story that I might regret telling Sometimes I'll tell a story and my wife will be like, you should not have told that story. But I'm going to tell the story anyway. So maybe I'll get some letters afterwards. Who knows? When I was a little kid, when I was a little kid, I uh, had an aunt. And whenever I'd visit that aunt, I would wander around in her neighborhood. You used to be able to do that back, back then. I used to wander around the neighborhood and there was a stray cat that I found that I really grew fond of. This cat was fun to play with. And so I, whenever I would be at my auntie's house, I'd go and I'd look for that cat. And I'd find the cat and play with the cat. I'd sneak at some food. It was a stray cat, so it was a skinny thing, uh, barely getting by. And uh, I remember one day, I found out the cat was getting big. And I thought, somebody has adopted this cat. And my aunt said, no, 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 nobody's adopted that cat. That cat is pregnant. And that just blew my mind. That meant that that cat was going to have kittens, and I had never played with a kitten before. So I was going to be able to play with a kitten. So I couldn't wait for the next time I was going to come and visit with my auntie. And I got word, she had called and talked to my mom about something, and she had mentioned that, tell Nick his cat gave birth to those kitties. And I was ecstatic. I couldn't wait to get back over to the house. A couple of days went by, and eventually we went over to visit my auntie. And so I was chomping at the bit. I wanted to see this, these kittens. And my aunt put it off. She tried to say, no, no, we can't play with the kittens right now. And I was persistent. I want to see those kittens. Come on, let's go see those kittens. And she said, well, you can't see those kittens. You see, something pretty bad has happened. 
After the kittens were born, the daddy cat came back around and he killed the kittens. There were three kittens in the litter. He killed the kittens and he ate one of the kittens. And I was shocked. That, to my six-year-old mind, was the evilest thing I had ever heard of in my life. That a creature would not only kill his own offspring, but would eat the offspring. I was like, why? That could not happen. Why would an animal ever do that? And she tried to explain to me, what I, through my tears, I couldn't understand at the time as a child, that that cat's a stray cat, and it was starving. And this little vulnerable animal was protein, and it just it wanted to live. So it killed its kitten, and it ate it. That's practicality. Now, now, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying that if you don't have Jesus, you're going to eat your kids. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not saying that, right? But we do devolve to the animalistic standard of if it works for me, I will do it if God is not in the picture. God is the one thing that keeps us doing what is right, even if it is not convenient. So when we ignore the image of God that he has put into our hearts, then we tend to devolve to the behavior of animals. And nobody wants to, nobody wants to say that out loud, but it is true. Watch the nature of man. Watch the first time a teenage boy is away from his home and he doesn't have mom and dad breathing down his neck anymore. What does he do? He does what he wants to do because nobody's telling him what he should or should not do. So men are like beasts in that they are not ultimately concerned with justice apart from God. They want to do what they want to do and if justice is also satisfied, so be it. But it is not critical to their hearts. The second way that man and beasts are like, or that man and beasts are alike is that they are limited by the same confines of mortality. Both man and beasts will eventually die. Each generation needs to learn that. And that's why part of what he says there in verses 18 through 22 is that the children of man are like beasts. So this is something that every new generation has to learn. I had to learn this when I found out that this cat that I liked had its kittens eaten by another cat. That man eventually dies, just like all the beasts of the field. He says it in Genesis-type language, from dust Adam was formed, and to dust he will return. So too do the beasts go back to the dirt. After they die, they decompose, and they become uh, the soil again. Now verse 21 is going to need a little bit of textual clarification. This verse points out a prevailing ignorance regarding the final state of man. In the Old Testament, they didn't have quite as vibrant a theology of heaven as we have now. God had not revealed so much to them. So there were a lot of question marks, a lot of mysteries about what happens after this life on earth is finished. And so many people, when they read verse 21, read it as, who knows what's going to happen? Nobody knows what's going to happen. But that's not really what is being said in this passage. In verse 21, there's a, 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 a variation in the Greek that I think the English Standard Version, which we use, which is a great Bible, uh, but no Bible is perfect. I think the ESV gets it wrong here. Um, some argue that this should be translated, who knows the spirit of man, whether it goes upward, in a sense, and whether the spirit of, of animal, whether it goes downwards. So basically saying, who knows what happens to the spirit of man? And that's what you'll see if you've got an ESV Bible there. But the Hebrew form of the sentence is not in what we call the interrogative. It's not a question that's being asked, hoping that somebody will answer. It is pointing out that most people do not know the reality of what the sovereign God has ordained. I believe that, that ESV is slightly mistaken here. The preacher is not asking if anyone knows, He's implying here that it is rare to find anyone who is mindful of the ongoing state of the spirit 
after death. So rather than reading who knows whether the state of man goes back to the dust, he's saying who knows the spirit of man that goes up to heaven and who knows the spirit of the animal that goes down to the dust. There are a few who do. And and I'm going to point that out to you here through Scripture. You might recall from earlier sermons of this uh, passages of Ecclesiastes we've been working through, this idea of the, of the grave. It's called Sheol in the Hebrew. For many Israelites, the grave was where their understanding of death ended. They had no information beyond that to try to determine what might happen to a good person's soul or a bad person's soul. But they weren't completely and utterly devoid of any information scripturally. You might remember a man named Enoch. Enoch lived very early in the history of man, seventh generation from Adam. In Genesis chapter 4 and 5, we learn that Enoch was pleasing to God. We learn that Enoch Enoch loved God and walked with him. And we also learn this very interesting fact about his life and death. He had no death. Enoch lived a very long time on the earth, and then God decided at a particular point in his journey, you know what, Enoch loves me so well, and I love Enoch so well, that I'm not going to let him experience death. I'm going to bring him straight to heaven. Enoch went to live with God. That's all we hear about him. He was not laid to rest. You can't go and dig up his bones somewhere because he never died. That means that there is life beyond the grave. As early as Genesis 5, we see some some vague evidence of life beyond the grave. You might remember in the book of Luke when Jesus is talking um, to the crowds and he shares a parable about two men who died. One was a rich man, one was a poor man, a beggar. And the rich man doesn't end up in heaven like you might think. Though he seemed to be blessed in life, he ends up in torment. He's being punished eternally in in a place of fire and brimstone. And yet this poor man, Lazarus, has been exalted to a place that they called Abraham's bosom. He was blessed because no matter how much money you have, what really matters is whether you love the Lord God or not. Trust Him. And so this man, Lazarus, is described as being in Abraham's bosom. That shows us that the Israelites had formed some kind of a understanding of life after death, even though they couldn't really define it, even though they couldn't make clear terms about what it was or or how you could get there. But I think the strongest scriptural evidence that the Old Testament did have people who followed after God and knew that there was life after death would be found in the Psalms. In Psalm 49, verses 12 through 15, David, who also was a man who loved the Lord God, says this, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Does that sound familiar? It's almost a direct quotation of Ecclesiastes, right? He is like the beasts that perish. But there's more to the story. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. So this is referring to those who people approve of their actions in life, but their actions don't match the will of God. And so what's going to happen to them? They might prosper here for a little while. There might be some injustice, and they might have it good on earth. But when their life is done here, they don't have anything to look forward to. There's this vague sense of judgment for them. Then look at verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, which is the grave, the power of the grave, for He will receive me. Even if the majority of men do not know what happens to the soul after death, Yahweh knows. 
And Yahweh has made an effort to show to us over the years little bits and pieces of the fact that the soul of man does not just go back down into dust. That all the souls of men, wicked and righteous, will ascend to the place of judgment in heaven where their final destination will be determined. Hebrews 9, 27-28 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So each human being who lives will come before the throne and God will determine whether or not they have Christ. And if they have Christ, they have an eternity with God in heaven. If they do not have Christ, then they have judgment. Their sin becomes their own problem and they carry it for eternity. When it seems as though justice is a fairy tale and life on earth is not fair, we've got to remember that both the wicked and the righteous will one day come to that final throne of judgment. The wicked will be found wanting the righteous exonerated, not by their own works, but by the works of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is one of the reasons why we've got to have a strong theology of heaven and hell, friends. We've got to think about these things. We've got to think about that place that is our final destination. Remember that the Apostle Peter, in writing to the churches in Asia Minor, reminds them that they are just sojourners. They are not citizens of the earth anymore, having trusted in Jesus Christ. These believers now belong to a heavenly country. And so, friends, we've got to keep this in our mind. When we look around the world at the injustice that is everywhere, how much strength do we draw from the the, the true facts that this isn't our final destination, that there is more to the story, and that God has secured a future for us that is far brighter than what we see on the nightly news. Having thought through his concerns and, and having seen that the temporary injustices that exist in the world serve a very important purpose. The preacher draws a final conclusion in verse 22. And this conclusion coincides with his previous conclusion, that man should enjoy what God chooses to give to man, not because there's nothing better than to eat and to drink and to work, but because it is sovereign God's gift for him today. Verse 22, I perceived, meaning that having thought this through and having made some comments, this is my final judgment on it. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own work, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? We don't know when final justice will be had in in the earth. We don't know when these wicked people that seem to be thriving will be called to task for the ways that they have broken God's commands. But in the meantime, the, the preacher assures us that there can still be joy in what good things God does choose to give to you. It's my understanding that Jorge uh, is living a a very basic life in prison in El Salvador. Uh, But it's interesting to hear that one of the joys is that somebody had started coming into the prison to lead a Bible study in his cell. And he was able, for a time at least, before they saw that it was causing him good and they shut it down, he was able to hear the Word of God preached. He was able to rejoice in that small gift that God was providing for him. There is always something good to rejoice over, no matter how bad the injustice seems in the world. There are things that we can identify and see as God's gracious gift to us here today. May we always look forward to the final justice that God will bring to things, that sin will once and for all be defeated. But in the meantime, we don't have to walk around with a heavy cloud hanging over our heads. We can walk around knowing that God is good and that He gives us what we need today, knowing that our ultimate needs will be met in heaven. The sovereignty of God, which has been kind of our theme the last three weeks, 
is a tough subject for some people to really swallow. It's very difficult for many to come to terms with the idea that God could be in complete control of everything. Because His will for reality, God's will for life, seems to be so different than what we would do. If we were God, we would, re- we would write the script completely different than Him. So one of us has got to be wrong here. Either my idea of what life should be is wrong, or God's idea of what life should be is wrong. And so in light of this difficulty, some are tempted to redefine what they think of God. They want to think of Him as someone who is less than sovereign. They like that, this idea that God is, yeah, He's greater than us, but He's not in complete control of everything. We have this free will that means that God has to sit and wait. God has to see what we're going to do. God has to adjust to us. He's got to figure out what we're going to do before He can do what He wants to do. It's easier for people to love a God who is not in complete control because that would leave room for this idea that God might not be doing things the way we want Him to do them. That person could then say, well, God's falling short, but at least He's trying. This God who is bigger than us, but not sovereign, could say that the injustice in the world that we see all around us is not His fault because He's not totally in control. So it's not falling upon His shoulders. Then we wouldn't have to think of God as this God who doesn't do exactly what we want Him to do, but we also could no longer count on Him to bring order to the chaos of this life that is so subject to sin. Friends, you need a sovereign God. You should want a sovereign God. You cannot get by in life without a sovereign God. If God is not radically different than you and me, if He is not beyond time, if He's not impervious to the will of any other creature, then our very existence is in peril because there's no guarantee that things are going to turn out right if God is not sovereign. Do not, in your fear of being ruled, redefine God to be merely a better version of yourself. Worship Him for what He is, something utterly greater than anything else that you could ever encounter. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the essence of love. He is the unstoppable author who knows exactly why each stroke of the pen is included in his story and he is working all things to the good for those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. So I want to close with the words of A.W. Pink. He's a faithful man of the Lord, a commentator on the scripture. In his book, The Sovereignty of God, he writes, Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed it. Here is a foundation of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to His own good pleasure and for His own eternal glory. Rest assured, friends, this God whose mind cannot be changed is no tyrant. He is a God who cannot be stopped, but He is also a God who loves His creation dearly and is utterly committed to truth and justice and equity. Trust this sovereign God. Be grateful that the story that He has written is a story that He has invited us to be a part of. Would you please bow with me as we conclude in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the amazing grace that you pour out upon us. We are well aware, Lord God, of our inability to solve 
the multitude of problems that plague our world. God, we can only come before you humbly in prayer and ask that you will do what we cannot do. And then trust based on the promise of your scripture and the precedent of you always keeping your promises to this point that you will indeed bring justice one day. We pray that it will happen soon. Father, I ask that in the meantime we would be diligently sharing the good gospel, the good news of Jesus' sacrifice, of his death, burial, and resurrection, and the wonderful reality that we can be made new by trusting in him who paid the penalty for sin. I thank you, Lord God, that we have the scripture to faithfully guide us and direct our paths. Give us greater discernment and understanding so that it will not be confusing to us let us have great joy as we apply ourselves to living according to its guidance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.